Well, it's great to be with you this evening. Uh, it's great to see old friends and make new. Hey, Rainer. It's good to uh, see some of the brothers here and, you know, come back and see the continued fruit of your ministry and uh, of, of your work here. And um, I had wanted to come back uh, two years ago. I left, you know, three years ago. I wanted to come back two years ago, but COVID was going on. And then I wanted to come back last year, and then the hurricane happened. So God in his providence is delayed. But it's good to be with you again. And, um, and as uh, Aubrey said, our topic tonight is church reform, the why and the how. So I, I have two uh, talks tonight. The first is why church reform. Why do we need to think about this? Why do we need to do this? And then the how is how do we do this? How, how do we go about reforming a church? Uh, and, and hopefully you got one of these booklets when you came in. This gives a rough outline of where we're going. If you'd like to take notes, you can take notes. Um, but as Aubrey said, um, the first uh, church where I had the privilege of uh, serving as a pastor was in Boston in the United States. Uh, and, and served there for uh, 20 years. And the first seven years, you know, I was a very, uh, very young man. Uh, probably, I look back now, I don't know, I think I was too young. <laughs> but the church uh, was gracious to me. And uh, the first seven years of the church uh, was a very growing ministry. Um, I was preaching uh, the word, learning how to preach. Uh, there was young families joining the church. Many people were coming. We were starting to fill up, and and everyone came. You know, when, when the church is is growing, you know, I've been in seasons of church growth. I've been in hard times in church, but in church seasons of church growth, there's a lot of energy. People have all kinds of ideas. They see the excitement. They say, "Let's do this. Let's do this," and and had all this energy and all these ideas, and people excited about the church. And, and the thing I began to wrestle with is, uh, and the way I would have said it back then was, what is the right model for my church? What's the form? H how should we organize the church as it continues to grow? Uh, there, there were f famous books at the time. There was the seeker sensitive church where you structure the whole church around the person who's not a Christian and you want to design the church so that that person who's not a Christian would come into the church. Uh, there was the purpose-driven church where you have the five purposes of the church that you... You'd, so there are different models. Um, and, and so I, I actually was there seven years and I asked my elders for a sabbatical. And I said, they said, what do you want to do on a sabbatical? I said, well, rest. But I said, I want to find the model for, the church, for our church. And so they, they allowed me to set off on a journey to visit churches all over the United States that were doing church different ways. And so I was like on a quest <laughs> to find the model that would work for our church. Uh, th that was my first encounter with... Uh, multi-site churches where it's one church with campus here campus there campus there different places uh, i went to churches that had incredible music it was like i was in a concert you know an amazing you know rock like rock show concert quality where you just were like wow these must be professional musicians 
Um, all kinds of different churches with all kinds of different approaches. Um, but it was in that journey that I went to one particular church that wasn't that famous, but, but when I went there, I found that the model they were seeking to follow from the church was simply to open their Bibles and try to do whatever the Bible said about the local church. And, and I, I was so struck because I'd seen all these churches trying to do all these innovations. And here's this one church saying, let's just do whatever the Bible says. And it was some ways so simple, but because of the, the way churches were and still are, I would argue, it was so strange to hear. Nobody was saying this. <laughs> but over those last seven years, my first seven years as a pastor, I was preaching the Bible, preaching the Bible, thinking about how should we do church. And finally, I, I found some people who just said, hey, look at the Bible you've been preaching. And it says a lot more about the church than you think it does. And so that began a new journey for me of what I would call reformation. So let me define reformation. If you look in your little booklet there, I, have, uh, I think definitions are important. It's good not to just throw words around, but to understand at least what the speaker means, uh, let alone what you may be thinking. When you hear the word reformation, I don't know what that means to you. Maybe you've never heard that English word, and you're thinking, I don't even know what that means. So what is reformation? Um, and the, the idea of reformation is to reform. So think about forming something, making the shape of it, making the order of it. So to reform it is to come in and say, hmm, the structure and the shape needs to be changed and adjusted and moved in, in some way. It needs to be reorganized. Maybe you've been in a company that's gone through a reorganization. And, you know, it's always scary when you hear they're going to be doing a reorganization in the company. As you think, will I have a job in the new organization? Will my job still be there? And, and so it's, it's this idea of the organizing principles of the church and this, its pattern of life, its uh, practices, its structures. And, and biblical reformation is saying we should order our structures and our practices according to the things we see in the Bible. That's the idea. That's all that it really is. Reformation is a process of seeking to do church. Do you ever hear that phrase? How does your church do church? Oh, our church does church like this. How does your church do church? And, and so this is, Reformation is trying to do church based on especially what we see in the New Testament. Uh, Reformation is a back to the Bible approach for organizing the life and culture and leadership and philosophy of a church. Um, Reformation is a call to change. It's a call that says, because of what the Bible says, let's stop doing that and let's start doing this. So usually in Reformation, there's a, we need to stop that, and there's usually a, we need to start this. So, so that's Reformation. It's the, it's the structure and the organization. Uh, now you'll notice there's another word I have there, which is revitalization. 
And, and sometimes when you talk to pastors going into a church, they'll, they'll use these two terms, revitalization and, re, and reformation, kind of interchangeably. I think it's helpful to distinguish them because I think they're talking about different things, though those two things are often related to each other. If, if reformation is a reordering and a restructuring of the church's life according to scripture, revitalization is when you go into a church where the spiritual life and vitality of the church is very low and about to die. Okay, so, um, you know, you're going into the church and that church, maybe, you know, 50 years ago was a big, strong church and now there's just 15 people left. Their average age is 76. They're tired. They, you know, they, they remember the glory days of when the church was, you know, impactful and now it's changed. And, and they worry. They worry. You know, if we don't change something in the next four or five years, we might have to close this church. That's a church that needs to have life put back in it, revitalized, you know, the, the vitality of the church which I think is a different thing than Reformation, though the two are often linked. Uh, typically, to bring revitalization, uh, you have to do some Reformation. There are things you have to stop doing and things you have to start doing biblically. Um, and to do revitalization, uh, if, if you do reform, or you do revitalization, you often have to do reform in order to protect the new vitality of the church. Uh, sometimes, Sometimes a church can be vital but need reformation. So that was my church in Boston. It, was, it had vitality. You would look at it from the outside and someone might look at it and say, why are you going to change anything, Jeremy? We, we have a saying in the United States, if it isn't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> if your church is growing and people seem to be happy, why are you going to mess with it? it? It has vitality. But the thing is, if a church has vitality, but it doesn't have God's form for the church, there will come a point when it will start to undercut itself by the very, by the very nature of the fact that the, for, the right forms aren't there. There will come challenges, and if the structure is not in place, you know, when the weather is good, it doesn't really matter how the house is built, but when the storm comes, then the form and the structure really matter. When the hurricane comes <laughs> that hit our island, you could tell which houses were built well and which houses weren't because the ones that weren't were, they were gone. And so that's important to distinguish reformation and revitalization. Both are important and they're often connected. And then here's a third word that is sometimes thrown around, which is revival. And I would also want to distinguish that. Uh, I would define revival as uh, a surprising, unexpected, sovereign work of God's spirit in which normal church ministry has extraordinary fruit. Okay. It's, uh, it's usually a time where something just happens and you're like, so I was preaching the same sermons last year and this year... Ten times the people have come. It, it's an outpouring of God's spirit. You cannot make a revival happen. You cannot schedule a revival. You cannot plan a revival. <laughs> you can't make a revival happen. It's God 
sovereignly sending a great move of his spirit. You can be ready for revival. You can pray for revival. Yeah. And I think you have to be preaching God's word, and there's certain things you have to do to bring about the revival, but it's a surprising work of God that comes and goes uh, according to God's will, in which there's extraordinary fruit. So when we're talking about Reformation, we're talking about the ordering and structuring of a church's life, which is different from revitalization, which is helping a dying church come back to life, though often Reformation is involved in revitalization, which is also different from revival, which, which is God's spirit moving. Now, the three can all happen at once. I think during the Protestant Reformation was an amazing time where there was Reformation and revitalization, and I think there was a revival of the church that people had not seen for, for years, where many people were coming to faith. And so they were all together. And sometimes it's, you know, they, they're all in one. But it helps us, I think, in our minds to keep them separated. So we're talking about Reformation. So, um, so Reformation then comes with certain assumptions. Uh, we're talking about Reformation according to God's word. And there are certain assumptions that I'm making about pastoral ministry that lead me to the place to say, we need to reform the church. Why do we say, okay, that's what reformation is. Why do I need to do reformation? Well, it's because of assumptions. So here's four assumptions that are underneath the need to reform. Uh, reformation assumes the Bible is God's word. Okay. That this is the very word of God. That the Holy Spirit wrote this book. And we believe that whatever it says is what God says. Um, and so a high view of scripture is key to reformation. That if you want to know what God has to say, if you want to know a certainty what the Holy Spirit says, you have to read this book. And without this book, you can't even know who God is or how to be saved. And so th this is the word of God. Here's the second assumption. And, and probably so far you're like, yeah, yeah, of course. We believe the Bible is God's word. We're, we're in the Protestant tradition. Here's the second assumption. The church is Jesus' church. It's not my church. It's not your church. He's the head of the body. Uh, and therefore, he's the one who decides what the church should be like. He's the one who's the Lord of the church. Whatever Jesus says, that's how it goes. He's the king of kings and lord of lords and sheikh of sheikhs. Uh, he, he's the one who says yes, no, and we do it because he's lord of the church. Now, here's the third one, and this is where number three is key. This is where a lot of times we, we don't make the turn to number three, but this is the assumption really that pushes reformation. Number three. Jesus tells us through his word how he wants his church shaped. That's the key one. So I think sometimes people say, yep, the Bible is God's word. Yep, Jesus is the head of the church. But when you add one plus two, it equals three. And you say, therefore, if the Bible tells me things about the church, then I should do those things. 
that he's telling me through the Bible. And I think that's the part where often even Bible-believing Christians who love Jesus very much and are saved and are brothers and sisters, we often don't turn that corner. That's, that's where I was. I mean, I was preaching the Bible for seven years. I was faithfully preaching God's word. Um, and, and I believed that it was Jesus' church, but I had been a pastor for seven years and I'd never made it to point three. I'd never put together those two ideas and said, therefore, if the Bible says it, I should do it. That Jesus gives me his plans and purposes for his church uh, in his word. And then also number four is, and this is the, the fourth one, Jesus' plan for his church is good and healthy for all peoples and all cultures. And that's the, that's the real one, that, that Jesus has a plan for his church and it works in the United States, it works in Manila, it works in Amman, <laughs> it works in Papua New Guinea, that if you go out to an unreached language group in the Caucasus Mountains of uh, Azerbaijan, where there's people, there's languages there that have never heard the gospel, that have no Bible, no church. And if you were to somehow be able to get into the country and start a church there, that the model of Jesus for his church is good and healthy for the people in the Caucasus Mountains too. So, so that's the, those are the assumptions I'm working with. And, and if, you don't, if we don't have those assumptions, then all of this, this talk of church reform is going to seem kind of like, oh, you know, if you don't believe the Bible is God's word, and then somebody's saying, but look what the Bible says, you're going to say, well, the Bible's an old book for old times. This is modern times. We need modern approaches. Or, or, if, or if, I don't, if I don't believe that what the Bible says about the church is, number three, how Jesus wants his church, well, then I'll say, well, yeah, that worked back then, and I'm happy for them, but this is different times, and we need to be creative and we need to think what really works today in, in, in that kind of language. In fact, there's often some objections to this approach to Reformation. Um, look at the next page there. Common objections to Reformation. Here's four. The methods change. The, sorry, that's wrong. The, mes- the methods change, but the, I should say, message remains the same. Have you ever heard of that? The message is the same, but the methodology can change, right? Uh, so we always preach the same gospel of Jesus who died on the cross for our sins, but the way we do ministry and the way we do church, it can vary greatly from place to place. That really doesn't matter. But we, we know the Bible tells us what the message is. It's the gospel. And, and my response to that is, wait a minute, the same Bible also talks about the church. So if I believe what the Bible says about the message, then why do I not also believe what the Bible says about the method when it speaks to the method? Um, Here's a second one. This is one that that we would probably understand uh, living in the UAE. Cultures differ dramatically. And so the shape and order of a church should be contextualized. You know, cultures are so different. Uh, and, you know, you, you, think, you think they're different, and then you live in a place like the UAE where you're living like this with other cultures, 
And then you realize how different they are. And things that you thought were normal, you're like, well, this is just how you do things. This is the right way to do things. And then you meet someone from another culture and they're like, I have no idea why you're doing that. That's the wrong way. And you say, what do you mean? You know, and then you have this cultural confusion. And so shouldn't every church really just fit the forms and models of, of the different cultures in which they find themselves? Um, and, and my response to that uh, it would be, uh, again, th- the church is not a cultural reality or construct. It, it is the kingdom of God on earth. And so, yeah, the church has a different culture. It's the culture of the kingdom of God. And all of us, no matter what culture we're from, no matter what background we're from, we're all learning a new way of being human beings together, which is the way of Jesus. And there's going to be things about me as an American that I'm going to have to change because it, being an American you know, doesn't fit with what the Bible says about how to be a Christian. And so I have to repent of American things that are contrary to Scripture. If you're from you, you know, Kerala, you're going to look at Christianity and you're going to see things that contradict the way your culture thinks. And we have to repent of those things. So there's a new culture being created in the local church. And that culture is in part reflected by the structures that Jesus has given us for his church. <coughs> and so, so, you know, there is contextualization, but at its core, we, we need to trust that if Jesus says something works, it, it should work. And by the way, and I think we'll see this, I think a lot of the structures in the local church that we find in the New Testament have a very family-oriented feel to them the new family of God. And every culture has families. We all understand the family structure to some degree, even though even families vary differently in how they operate within uh, you know, different cultures. And yet there's something there that makes sense. Um, here's a third objection to Reformation. Some people say, well, the Bible doesn't answer every question we have about church life and order. I mean, okay, Let's go to the Bible. All right, I got questions about how to do church. Let's open the Bible. Where do I turn in my Bible to see whether we sit in chairs or sit on the floor? Hmm. Where where do I turn in my Bible to see if a worship service should last one hour, 15 minutes, or four hours, followed by lunch, followed by two more hours? Where, Where do I turn in my Bible to find what what software I should use for the church database, right? What's that? iOS? Yeah, yeah. It's a, you know, it's, it's a, does Jesus want us using Apple or Windows? Right? And, and so people will say, look, the Bible, there's so much in church life the Bible doesn't say. And so this back to the Bible approach, you know, it does, it's not really that helpful. And, and my response to that objection is, you're right. The Bible doesn't say everything about church life together. There's a lot of room for cultural expression. There's a lot of room for us to use wisdom uh, within our culture. That's why, you know, Bible-believing churches aren't all exactly cookie-cutter, right? You know, should, should the music be kind of quiet and somber, or can it be expressive and loud? You know, it's all these different things that are cultural things that we have to wrestle through. And yet, having said that, I think we go in the opposite error 
if we say, therefore, we shouldn't look to the Bible for anything, right? The, yeah, the Bible doesn't say everything, but it says some things. And what it says, we have to think about and work out so that we carry forward the things that, that Jesus wants us to carry forward. Um, and here's the last objection people say to Reformation. And we could probably list more. They say, well, hey, wait a minute. Every church seeking to follow the Bible for church order, even churches seeking to follow the Bible for church order, have different practices. Okay, so Aubrey has a church, I have a church, Adam has a church, and we all say, we, yes, we want to do reform, we want to follow the Bible and how we do church. So then you go to Aubrey's church, and then you come to my church, and you go to Adam's church. Aubrey's, you know, you go to Adam's church, he has drums and guitar. You go to Jeremy's church, there's just a piano and we only sing two songs. And Adam sings, you know, ten songs. Then I go to Aubrey's church and, uh, you know, there's no instruments. It's just a cappella singing. And they only sing the psalms. <laughs> you know. And, and we go, Aubrey, why don't you play, why don't you sing other music? And he says, well, the Bible says, speaking psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And I say, well, I'm not sure the Bible is limiting it just to songs. And so here's three people all trying to argue from the Bible, and their churches look different. And some people will say, see, Reformation, it's just, it's subjective. And, and my response to that is, hey, we're talking, at least we're talking about the Bible <laughs> great let's have a conversation about the bible but we're not saying oh i did a survey of culture and this is what people want we're, we're not just fishing about in culture or best business practices or you know oh people like tiktok oh maybe we need to incorporate tiktok into our worship you know People like puppets. I mean, maybe we should have puppets. People like movies. Maybe we should just watch a movie and talk about the movie. You know, we're not saying, we're saying, we're discussing the Bible. So fine, some people baptize babies. Some people, you know, do it the other biblical way, which is not to baptize babies. <laughs> okay, fine. But at least we're talking about the Bible. And, and I'm okay with the fact that that I, I still wrestle with how to interpret the Bible. I don't know everything perfectly. You know, it's, the Bible's not the problem. The, the problem was Jeremy. <laughs> and, and someday we'll get to heaven and I'll say, oh, okay, they were right about this and I was wrong about that. But that's fine. But let's talk about Scripture and not just, therefore, throw Scripture out the window and say, well, what's the fastest growing, biggest church in the world doing? We should do what that is because we want to, grow the church or whatever we want to do. Does that make sense? And so, so there are uh, objections to this, but I really, uh, I really think that, that a serious approach to God's word and Jesus' lordship over the church and his goodness and his love for us should lead us to a place of endeavoring to trust and wrestle through what the Bible says. Not that we perfectly understand it or that everybody agrees but we're moving in that direction we're not going ah oh, which way is the the wind blowing in the culture oh people want this well let's do that oh people want this we'll do that 
Or, or this is what my culture does, or that's what that culture does. We want to look at Scripture. Let me do this, uh, since I'm harping on the Bible so much. Um, let's just look at three examples of Reformation from the Bible. I, I want to show you that this is actually something that God's people have done, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. That when we look in the Bible, one of the, the things we see happening is God's people coming back to the Bible af after periods of decline and decay, and they're coming back to the Bible, and, and they're using it to order and structure their lives together. Uh, so let me give you three examples, and if you want to open your Bible, you can see the outlines there. But um, I just want to take us very quickly through these three examples. And I want to show you this is part of the church's life. So the first one is 1 Chronicles 29. Oh, I'm sorry, 2 Chronicles. Too many typos tonight. 2 Chronicles 29. So this is about King Hezekiah. Uh, his father was King Ahaz. Was Ahaz a good king or bad king? Bad, very bad king. He instituted idol worship. Um, he sacrificed some of Hezekiah's brothers in a fire to a statue. This evil king. He uh, sold the money in the temple to, to pay off foreign governments to help protect them. He took God's money and gave it to you know, the Assyrians and Egyptians and all these, these groups. And so he emptied it. And finally, at the end of his, his reign as king, he shut the doors to the temple. And so the church, uh, the church then, the Old Testament people of God, the people of Israel were in a very low state. Uh, it was very bad. So Hezekiah took the reins, and as he began to reign, he immediately began a process of reformation. Look at 29.3. In the first year of his reign, uh, in the first month, you know, he opened the doors of the Lord's temple and repaired them. So sometimes they ask a, a presidential candidate, what will you do in your first 90 days of office? And Hezekiah says, I will open the temple. I will repair the doors. We're going to do this again. So he's beginning to reform, restructure what they do for worship. And he didn't stop there. Look at verses 4 and 5. Then he brought in the priests and Levites and gathered them in the eastern public square. He said to them, hear me, Le Levites, consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Remove everything impure from the holy place. And he goes on to say, because that's why God's judgment is coming on us, is because we're not worshiping God the right way. And so there has to be a cleaning out. You know, in Reformation, uh, you, you often, if you come into a church to do reform, again, there's some things you need to start doing, but there's other things that have to be stopped because they're, they're making the temple of God, his church, impure. And so there's a cleaning out. And so he says, Levites, you need to consecrate yourselves. You're not even living a holy life. So Levites get right. And then Levites make the temple right. And, and there's a reordering of the life of the church with the leadership of the church. Uh, look down at chapter 29, verse 15. 
It says they gathered their brothers together, consecrated themselves, so they set themselves apart to God as they were supposed to as Levites. And, and then they went according to the king's command by the word of the Lord to cleanse the Lord's temple. By the way, why did they do this again? It was by the king's command and by the what? Words of the Lord. So what was driving this was them all saying, oh, this is how God wants his people to worship him. It was the word of God teaching them how God's people were to be ordered and structured. If you look at 29, verses 20 to 21, they restarted the sacrifice. Uh, King Hezekiah, verse 20, got up early, gathering the city officials, and went to the Lord's temple. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, seven male goats as a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. And then he told the descendants of Aaron, the priests, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they're starting proper worship. And often we're going to see in Reformation, one of the, the battlegrounds of Reformation is always the public worship of God's people. This is where Reformation is, manifests itself in almost every case. Um, look at chapter 30, verses 1 to 5. They started the Passover again. Then Hezekiah sent word throughout all Israel and Judah. And he also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh to come to the Lord's temple in Jerusalem to observe the Passover for the Lord, uh, the God of Israel. For the king and his officials and the entire congregation in Jerusalem decided to observe the Passover in the second month because they were not able to observe it at the appropriate time. Not enough of the priests had consecrated themselves and the people hadn't been gathered together in Jerusalem. So you see that the forms are out of order. There aren't priests ready. The people aren't gathered. So they, they had to reform this. They had to reform the congregation. Verse four, the proposal pleased the king and the congregation. So they affirmed the proposal, spread the message throughout all Israel from Beersheba to Dan to come observe the Passover of the Lord, the God of Israel and Jerusalem, for they hadn't observed it often as prescribed. It, it would be like a, a church that, that didn't do the Lord's Supper. You know, that's our Passover remembrance. Jesus is the Passover lamb who was crucified and, and we're to do this in remembrance of him on a regular basis. And, and again, Bible-minded people can argue about if it's okay to do it once a week or once a month. Or <laughs> and so Bible-minded people have debates, okay. But, but we're not just saying, ah, uh, you know, let's not do communion because we want to reach non-believers and that'll make them feel weird because they won't understand communion. And, and they sh probably shouldn't take communion, but we don't want to tell anyone in church they're not allowed to take communion because then they won't feel welcomed and that'll limit our church's growth. So maybe we'll do it differently. I remember going on that church journey I went on for uh, a summer. I went to one church and, and I saw that you know the church was gathering and it was definitely a church that had a big show and, you know, big, big rock concert, really great music, light shows, lasers, you know, it was amazing. Uh, and, but then I noticed as I was coming in that they had a side room off one of the hallways, and it was where people could go if they wanted to take communion. And so, you know, like if there were really serious Christians, they could just go over there and get their communion really quick and then go into the church. 
And it's like, wait a minute. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So, so here's Hezekiah reinstituting the Passover because that's what God told them to do. Um, and, and reinstituting the offerings. Look at chapter 31, verses 11 and 12. Hezekiah told them to prepare chambers in the Lord's temple, and they prepared them. The offering, the tithe, the dedicated things were brought faithfully. They hadn't been collecting money for the work of God in this ministry. And so all of these things had to be redone. And, and I really appreciate the summary in chapter 31 at the very end of the chapter, verse 20. Hezekiah did this throughout all Judah. He did what was good and upright and true before the Lord his God. He was diligent in every deed that he began in the service of God's temple, in the instruction and the commands in order to seek his God, and he prospered. And so he wanted to do whatever God was commanding and to follow God's word. It was a, it was a ministry and a, um, a reign of reform. Here's a second Reformation story. Nehemiah. What's Nehemiah famous for? Rebuilding the walls. But if you think that all Nehemiah did was rebuild the walls, then you didn't read Nehemiah. <laughs> that was just the start. And he did it in like two months. So he was, a, he was an amazing project manager. You know, you want him in your company. He's going to get things done. Amazing project. Turn to Nehemiah. So he rebuilds the walls, and those are done very quickly. But then what he realizes is, is that even though the walls were torn down, just fixing the walls is not enough. You, you know, it's like build, building a new church expansion. Is not, okay, you build the new building, you build the new sanctuary. Now what? And so they had the building, they had the walls up, but there were all of these problems with their obedience uh, to God's word. For instance... If you look at chapter 5, uh, there was poverty because the rich were charging interest to the poor against God's word. And so the relationships within the, 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 the people of God were not being regulated by God's word. Um, look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. It says, when the wall had been rebuilt, and uh, Nehemiah says, I had the doors installed, okay, the gatekeeper, singers, and Levites were appointed. So he's starting to reorder the leadership and put in the, the kinds of leaders that the Bible says should be there. He says, then I put my brother Hananiah in charge of Jerusalem, along with uh, the, uh, Hananiah, uh, the commander of the fortress, because he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. And I said to them, do not open the gates of Jerusalem until the sun is hot, and let the doors be shut securely. Fastened while the guards are on duty. Station the citizens of Jerusalem as guards, some at the posts and some at their homes. And so he's ordering the people for the protection and security of Jerusalem. And then he does a census. Starting in verse 5, he goes and he finds the records of the people who first came. He wants to know who are the people there. In a sense, he was, he was taking seriously the membership of Israel. Who belongs who were the original people? What were their names? How many of them were there? You know? He, he wanted to know who the people were that were the actual people of Abraham. How many? What were their names? And where were they? There was a, a record keeping. Of course, uh, chapter 8 is the reading of the law. Such a wonderful chapter. I love chapter 8 where he, he stands up and uh, 
Ezra brings the book and Ezra opens the book and Ezra reads the book and Ezra explains the book. Such a great picture of what our job is as a pastor. Bring the book. <laughs> Sometimes guys go up in the pulpit, they don't bring the book. <laughs> you know you've got a problem, you know. But you got to, don't just bring the book. You've got to open the book. Sometimes they bring the book, but they don't open it. And then when you open it, it's not enough either. Read it. <laughs> read scripture to the people. Not just one little verse, but like read scripture. And then explain the scriptures. And, and again, you can see that this re-emphasis on reading and understanding God's word was going hand in hand with driving the Reformation. So that it was as they understood how God wanted his people to be, that was giving them the, the strength and determination to do it. Uh, as a result of that, look down at verse 13. They reinstituted the festival of uh, Sukkoth, the, the booths. So here is again, when they weren't following God's word, they stopped doing the, f- the festivals that God had given them to do. So now they're reordering their worship and recommitting themselves to the practices. Then there's a covenant renewal in chapter 10. And you can go on to chapter you know, 12 and 13 where... Chapter 13, where they were intermarrying with other people, where they weren't observing the Sabbath day. So these even came later in Nehemiah's work. So Nehemiah did the work, and then he went back to his boss, and then he came back, and the people had already stopped doing what they were supposed to be doing. (laughs) That's the problem with Reformation. Even after you reform something, then you've got to reform what you reformed. Uh, It's just, it's never ending. It keeps happening. Or let's just look at the New Testament. Maybe you say, well, that was the Old Testament. You know, they had all kinds of rules and laws. But New Testament's free. New Testament's Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is do whatever you want. Holy Spirit is if you feel it, do it. You know, and Holy Spirit is spontaneous. You know, it has, if it's not happening right there instantly, it's not Holy Spirit. You know, so Old Testament was law, letter, you know, the, the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. So New Testament is Holy Spirit. They, you know, they didn't worry about church order. Yeah, that's what the people in Corinth thought. They thought they had, they were a Holy Spirit church, and they were. God had blessed that church with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They had amazing <laughs> gifts. It was amazing what God was doing in that church. But, but along with the they were, a, they were not a dead church. They were alive. That church did not need to be revitalized. It needed, it needed to be calmed down a little bit. <laughs> it was very alive. But Paul said, but you're out of order. You know. So look at 1 Corinthians. He changed their view. He challenged their view and understanding of leadership. You know, they, some guy says, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Christ. Uh, they, they wanted the, the, you know, the, the special guy that everyone was going to follow. The anointed man of God. <laughs> oh, he's the anointed man of God. No, he's the anointed man of God. And Paul's like, what are you talking about? You know, the, the Bible is clear that churches should be led by a plurality or a, a number of elders, not just one anointed man of God. There should be more than one elder leading a church. 
And, and really, that's how Christ leads his church through that. Or, or look at chapter 5, church discipline. Remember the man who uh, was found having a, an affair with his stepmother? And Paul says, guys, even the pagan Gentiles don't do that. And they're going to be shocked at you. They don't even do something like that. And so what does he do? He gives them instructions. He says in verse 3, even though I am absent from the body, I am present in spirit as the one who is present with you in this way. I've already pronounced judgment on the one who's been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord, so you need to come together and I'm with you in spirit, hand this one over to Satan. So he's giving them instructions for what they're to do with this unrepentant man who is sleeping with his stepmother, which is outrageous. And so there's order. You know, some things have to be stopped. And a lot of times in church reform, you'll find that there's bizarre, sinful things that have been allowed to fester in a church, and maybe they've just swept it under the rug because they're like, well, we don't want to fight. We don't want a problem. They keep sweeping it under the rug. But a reformer comes along and he pulls the rug back. And he's like, oh, oh what is that? <laughs> this has got to go. <laughs> and so here's Paul. He's, he's sending this guy out. Or, or num, uh, look again in chapter 5. Lawsuits and conflicts. He, he gives them instructions on how to handle lawsuits and conflicts in the church. He says, stop going to the courts. He says, appoint your own court within the church. And even take your most simple church members and let them be the judges. Um, and, and he applies the gospel uh, to that situation. Why not rather be wronged than embarrass the gospel in front of the civil authorities? Or chapter 7, he gives instructions for marriage, kind of like Nehemiah did. He gave instructions for intermarriage, how marriage should relate. Uh, 8 through 10, he talks about food offered to idols and, and how that should work in the local church and, and whether or not that can be. And so he, he's giving instructions for the behavior and the values and the principles in the church. Chapter 11, he gets into the public worship of the church. He talks about head coverings for women. He talks about the Lord's Supper in chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. Lots of instructions on how the Lord's Supper should be carried, carried out. They need to come together. They need to examine them. Lots of instructions. Lots of rules. Lots of Jesus' word to his church. Then in 12 to 14, you have spiritual gifts in the assembly. And he gets really practical how a church service should function and what's allowed and what's not allowed and, and how the life of, of the Spirit is, is an ordered life too. That those two are not opposites. Holy Spirit and biblical order are not enemies. Holy Spirit and biblical order can live together happily because the Holy Spirit in our God is a God of order as well as of life and joy. And, and bookending all of this is the gospel. Chapter one is the gospel, <laughs> preaching Christ crucified. Chapter 15 is the gospel. And it's uh, giving it the gospel to them again. And so this whole thing, the whole church is ordered around the gospel. So the, the structures of the church, the practices of the church are all expressions of the gospel in the church in different ways. So God cares. So, so think about this now. Who planted the church in Corinth? Who started that church? 
Paul. And then he was there for 18 months. Then he went away. And it was already crazy again. <laughs> so don't be discouraged, Pastor. <laughs> the Apostle Paul started a church, was there teaching them for 18 months, and then he had to go away. And then he hears reports of what's happening in the church. And so he's got to write a letter. He's already reforming the church he planted. And, and I think sometimes we think, oh, I'll just get it fixed and then it'll be good. No, there's always work going on. Why is that? Why, why do we have to keep reforming that way? Well, I don't know. Why, why do I keep falling back into the same dumb sins sometimes? It's because I'm a sinful man and churches are made up of sinful people. And so our sinful nature is working against us. The flesh is working against us. Satan is working against us, trying to get us off of the word of God. Satan's game has not changed throughout all the years. His game in the very beginning was, did God really say that? And he still says to the church today, did God really, did, did he really say that in the Bible? Do you really have to be that way? And, and so we're, we're tempted and we're tested to distrust God's word. Um, leaders change over time. We forget the Lord. How many times in the Old Testament was, is the command to the Israelites, remember, remember? We're just forgetful as a people. And so, so there's always this uh, entropy. There's always this uh, force working against the work of God in the local church. And so that's why the, the Protestant reformers, the greatest reformers, I think, one of the greatest reformations in all of church history, had a saying. Do you know the saying? The church reformed, always reforming. You never can stop. The church reformed, always reforming. And the longer you're in a church, the longer the chances are you will have to reform what you already reformed because everything's working against it. So it's a constant battle. It's a constant calling to keep calling ourselves and the people of God, just like our sanctification, constantly calling ourselves to seek the Lord and to put his word first in our life.